0: Professor Bruce Fryer is the John and Teresa Darm's Distinguished University Professor of Classics and Roman Law at Michigan Law School. He is the author of numerous books, including The Rise of the Roman Juris, a Casebook on the Roman Law of Delict, and the newly published Casebook on the Roman Law of Contracts. And he is the general editor of a three-volume annotated translation of the Codex of Justinian. Also, he is the co-author of The Modern Law of Contracts, from which many distinguished law students and podcast hosts have learned. He is a member of the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We had an in-depth conversation about Roman contract law. Hello, Professor. Thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, thank you for having me
0: uh, let's start by just clarifying how romans knew what contract law was uh, was it promulgated in some way shape or form that everyone knew what it was did you find out after the fact how, how did uh, how did romans know what contract law was
1: well uh it, it's actually a rather complicated question uh, that's a little dependent on our sources which are which are uh Partial as far as ordinary Romans are concerned, very partial. Um, the uh, basic method uh, was the uh, was the existence of of approved contract forms um, that operated through the uh, Edict of the Roman Praetor. Um, the Praetor the Praetor uh, announced each year in advance the con- the uh, forms of action that he would accept. And some of these are related to contract, by no means all of them, but some of the most important ones are related to contract. Uh, and the, this forms a kind of framework for subsequent development of the law. So often, uh, often the starting point is what's recognized by the Breeders' Edict. This turns out to be really important for the development of contract law in particular, uh, because not, very little of it originates in statute. Most of it originates from actions uh, that were recognized by the praetor, The trials that the preter was willing to give in order to enforce contracts between private individuals.
0: Yeah, that, that's very helpful. Um, we talked about the praetor's edict with uh, Professor Duplessis a little bit. So, if the listeners have would like any uh, further information on that, uh, I would recommend them to listen to episode one um i've so- listened
1: to his uh, i've listened to his episode and he certainly gives a very good account of the uh, of the development uh, of the reader's edict uh as far as contract is concerned uh we basically we fundamentally have little uh insight into it before uh, uh about the the second century bce uh thereafter it becomes progressively more prominent in our sources but as I stress, and we'll have to stress kind continuously, uh, our sources are quite partial as far as the actual historical process that was involved.
0: Understood. Okay. Okay, so with that on the table, we can start getting into more substance. Um, what form did Roman contracts take? Were they written? Were they oral? Uh, they, uh, they could be that?
1: both. Um, the, the Romans have no particular prejudice against oral contracts, and indeed, uh, the stipulation, which is one of the central contracts that the Romans used, was oral in its form. Uh, and uh, as a as a consequence, um, although there could be a written memorandum of it, and increasingly there was a written memorandum of it, uh, the oral form remained part of Roman contract law right down to the end of the uh uh, so-called classical period of roman law that is down to the late empire in the later roman empire the later western roman empire uh, uh, writing becomes almost um, mandatory for uh for these contracts but in principle they always remained oral so the romans had a lot of trust in oral contracts in, in a way that may seem odd to us today. On the other hand, written contracts are certainly not unknown. Um, uh, particularly under Greek influence, uh, the Romans came to recognize the value of having a, a clear statement of the terms of contracts, and they frequently refer to that uh, uh, process.
0: I think, um, I think non-lawyers in today's society, you might be surprised as to how binding uh, oral contracts even today can be. Of course, today the uh, when you're making an oral contract today, uh, you don't have to be incredibly formal. You just basically have to come to an agreement. Is that correct? Uh, where whereas in Rome, it was a much more formal process when you were making an oral contract. I was hoping you could you could talk about that difference
1: yes uh, uh the we want to concentrate here on what's called the stipulation the, the word stipulation is used in a different way in in roman law than it is uh in modern uh, english stipulation is a uh, a means a formal means of uh creating a promise that's binding on the promisor the person who makes the promise but it has a form that involves the promisee the person who will re- receive the performance. Uh, stating, uh, uh, do you promise to give me the, the, there's a set of words that are ordinarily used for this purpose. Do you promise to pay me 500 uh, sesterces or, or, or words to that effect, whatever the, whatever the performance is. And the other side simply says, I promise. So you have two individuals face to face, one of them stating the promise and the other saying, I promise to do that. Um, there's no more to it than that so it's easily recognizable you can learn it easily Um, and it seems to have existed uh, from as early as we can go back in in roman law and to have been binding Um, it should be noted that the promises um, as the romans would say unilateral that is to say one party is making the promise and the other party is receiving the promise and it is usually the party that is receiving the promise that is going to want to enforce it later that is an oral form it is perfectly possible for the parties also to write down the uh terms um and in at least in later law it's also possible for them to write down all of the terms and then simply say uh for the promise C simply to say do you promise to do what is in these written terms? Uh, and for the other party to say, yes, I promise. That is to say, at that point the written contract has become uh, really superior to the oral form. But the oral form always remains the uh, the bedrock. Um, and that depends to a certain extent on on a general societal belief that when you give your uh, when you give a promise in oral form, uh, you will abide by it you can be relied upon to abide by it
0: that makes sense i wonder if you are say a merchant um you might want to rely on written promises more if you're dealing in a lot of in, a, in large quantities of goods with multiple different parties whereas if you're say a laborer you know uh, build that house there's not a lot of ambiguity in that was there a distinction in terms of how frequent written contracts were used in sale of goods versus in other types of contracts?
1: I don't know that we can we can uh, generalize on that point. Uh, usually, uh, unlike in our uh, law, usually even in in forms that no longer involve the stipulation with its uh, with its formal uh, guarantee of a promise. Uh, the romans usually envisage contract making as involving face-to-face transaction Um, so sale of goods um although it theoretically could be accomplished by letter uh or by um uh, or by an intermediary uh, so long as the two parties come to an agreement uh, usually involves a face-to-face transaction uh it's just simply taken for granted that the parties will be meeting face-to-face um so there's always is a uh, uh, an oral sort of background. Um, it's hard to generalize about what types of contracts are going to be written and what types aren't. But obviously, as contracts become more and more complicated, and in Roman in the Roman world, they could become quite complicated indeed. They're likely to be written out um, uh, so that each party knows and can and can use uh, a document uh, in later litigation.
0: Got it. Okay. it It seems like the praetor's edicts would have would not be able to to handle such a complicated field of law. Um, you know, you're deal- starting to deal with typologies of contracts. I'm wondering where some more. Uh, is it an accurate thing to say? First of all, and if if it is, uh, were jurists involved in the development of uh, contract law?
1: Uh, again, that, that uh, they must have been involved to some extent. Um, the way the Romans put this is that uh, there is this basis of this formal contract, uh, formal in the sense that there is a required form that makes the promise binding, and then a series of informal contracts that are recognized by the Praetor on a one-to-one basis, um, uh, one after another over a space of perhaps two centuries. Uh, and these these, these informal contracts um, uh, usually involve bilateral relationships, um, particularly sale, um, lease of goods and lease of, of buildings, um, uh, partnership. Uh, there's, a, there's a set list of them that is uh, likely to be pretty well known to most people who have to do business with one another. Uh, those contracts. Uh, again, they can be purely oral. They often must have been purely oral, but uh, there was a tendency to uh to write them down as they became more complicated. The situation you talked about just a minute ago. Um, where um, for instance. Let us imagine uh, uh, the delivery of of, uh, wood for a building project in in Rome that is going to take place over a space of a year in monthly installments. Something like that is almost certain to be written. Uh, And there's often reference to the interpretation of written terms. So we know that these contracts were written we don't know much about how the jurists influenced the development of the Praetor's Edict. We do know um, that they that once that edict was in place, that is to say, once the edict had recognized the contract forms, at least in principle, the jurists were the main party persons who developed the law within that contract, so that. Um, uh, this and this really is quite important to the history of the law. So that if, uh, for instance, the contract of sale was recognized, the previous edict gave almost no details about what that contract would would have to look like, uh, and what implications it had. And the jurists were responsible then for developing the um, the duties that are associated with each party in one of those uh, in one of the recognized forms of contract. Um, they play a pretty fundamental role, um, and I, we can talk about the mechanisms that they use to develop this law. But um, uh, most of the law that we know about and that seems to be enforced in the Roman Empire is, in fact, of of development by the jurists uh, during the uh, during the three and a half centuries from from about one hundred BCE to uh, two fifty CE. Uh, in which the jurists were the preeminent authorities at the city of Rome.
0: Got it. Okay. And again, to the listener, we talked about the jurists uh, somewhat extensively with Professor Duplessis. So if you would like to get a good uh, primer on what the jurists were um, and how they operated just at a basic level, I invite you to go and listen to episode one. Uh, So Professor Fryer, we can jump in to talking more about the jurists as it regards contract law specifically um and i would uh, my understanding of the jurists is that they were sort of quasi academic and so they must have been thinking about contracts uh perhaps less uh concretely than the parties or or even the prater would did they did they ever develop you know sort of a unifying theory of co- what a contract was or contract law in general um what were their thoughts on that
1: they started to begin thinking about the problem of a generalized contract law, because Roman law, uh, the Roman law of contracts, develops within this scheme that, uh, of recognized contracts by the by the uh, uh, praetors. Um, it is not very amenable to a general theory. Um, however, the Romans jurists do isolate certain elements that they deem as as being uh, common to the formation of contracts and important to the understanding of contracts. Um, the, the principal one that they um, develop is the, is the notion of agreement, consensus in, in Latin. Consensus is a uh, idea that they describe by talking about it in terms of a meeting of the minds um uh, that minds uh, the, the minds of the two parties to a typical contract come together like people come together to a gathering um and that is some that's a metaphor that is explicitly developed in our sources it's not a very um helpful metaphor uh in that uh, quite frequently. Um, uh questions arise as to whether this is an actual agreement between the parties that's to say whether their minds are in fact coalescing or whether it just appears to a third party observer uh, uh, that their minds have met uh, or whether it appears to each of them that their minds have met Um, and that problem uh, is not very thoroughly examined in our sources but it's going to continue to be a problem more or less continuously um, throughout the uh, subsequent history of contract law in, in, uh, in, in Europe and uh, in the European-influenced world. Uh, um, fundamentally, it's, it depends a little on where we land along a spectrum from what's called objective consent, the appearance of consent, uh, to subjective, that is to say, real agreement between the parties but most legal systems fall somewhere in the middle of that line, closer to the objective than to the subjective side of the equation. Um, the Romans never really settled that problem. They probably would have been more to the subjective side of the uh, of the spectrum.
0: That's interesting to hear that they, they never really settled that problem. You could imagine in sort of a – well, not sort of – an antiquated – litigation system with underdeveloped theories of evidence, uh, di- incredible difficulty getting to subjective intent when you're talking about whether a contract was formed. And I, I can imagine plenty of situations where perhaps a uh, Roman sold, had drank a lot of wine and sold his farm as a joke uh, that that could obviously create plenty of issues. Um, so that's interesting to hear that they never, they never really got around to that Uh but There's yeah. a
1: lot that, uh, that that's a f- very fair observation and one that also uh, Paul Depressis was making uh, in, his, I- in his analysis. Uh, it often looks like the jurors are simply leaving that kind of question, particularly as it deals with evidence, uh, to the individual uh, uh, judge uh, to determine the eudex within the Roman system. Uh, rather than trying to elucidate a generalized theory. And so the question arises, is that really a better way to go about thinking of a lot of these questions? That is to say, rather than um, rather than uh, developing a fine theory uh, that turns out to be uh, difficult to implement in practice, whether it might not be a better idea to do what the jurist did and and namely leave a whole lot of questions like that to a uh, to a UDEX.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult difficult thing to think through. I might think from maybe the perspective of an economist, you want settled rules so everyone knows what the expectation is uh, going ahead of time. But on, then on the other hand, um, yeah, sort of sometimes leaving things to to parties and keeping things decentralized helps uh, grease the wheels of um, uh, of a market economy and keep things going.
1: The analysis that's being given today by economists suggests that, the, that that's not totally true and that the way that the Romans um, declined to uh, institute hard and fast rules with regard to the interpretation and the existence of contracts may have been a, a uh, institutional barrier to development. The Roman jurists never really think in terms of what is beneficial to uh, the development of a society and its economy. Um, if, you, uh, if you do insist on a fairly, uh, fairly strict um, uh, set of rules that are used in order to determine these questions, even though the results may be quite unfair in particular cases, such as your example of uh, uh, um, someone selling a farm because they're drunk um, nonetheless that could be beneficial for commerce um is the argument um that that clear defined rules uh, may have the ability to move the economy forward in a way that is beneficial to the uh to the individuals in the long run although not necessarily in the short run do you follow what i'm saying um
0: yeah, that's a, and it sort of seems like a tricky question that you could really never resolve empirically. It seems more of a theoretical issue that's you just argue about.
1: I tell you, I mean, we're we're really on the cusp of analysis. There's been practically nothing written about all of all of this uh, until roughly the year two thousand. Um, but people are quite interested in the question now uh, of how institutions. uh uh, may lead the way in economic development or hinder it um and i'm actually going to be talking about that topic in relationship to banking on the coming uh within the next few days so
0: wonderful wonderful we'll look for that okay that's that's very all very interesting we should switch gears now and talk a little bit about this concept uh bona fides uh
1: Yes, I think that's the second great concept that's associated with the development of Roman contract law. It's associated particularly with contracts, not with stipulations so much, but with other contracts of which uh, sale is usually taken as the archetypal example, sale of land, sale of goods, uh, uh, sale of practically anything that can be regarded as property, including, for instance, uh, accounts the um principle of bona fides is uh created really by the jurists um and it's thought of as a as a semi public notion a semi societal notion that um that people ought to behave toward one another uh, with a degree of um, of generosity if you could put it um and it comes through in in uh here i want to contrast Anglo-American law, it comes through in an insistence by the jurists that that the parties have a duty to one another Um, uh, that often goes beyond what we normally require in our legal system. Um, So that, for instance, um, uh, just to give a modern example of this, when you purchase a piece of electronic equipment, you anticipate Uh, That the the seller is going to have a, if you're buying directly from the manufacturer, is going to have to have a duty to include instructions that are clear. You just assume that. um, The Romans would have interpreted that as a duty of good faith requiring this sort of thing. Uh, uh, we tend to interpret it. Uh, uh, we tend to regard it as simply an interpretation of selling. What, what's meant by selling? But the Romans thought of this in terms of um, in terms of, of bona fides, and bona fides is is a powerful idea that has been absorbed into European civil law systems. Uh, that um, that establishes a a sort of protective duty of one party towards the other. Um, and supplements the contract with uh, the basic contract with numerous duties that the parties are free to vary if they wish in making their contracts, but usually don't. Um, and um, and the consequence is uh, to create a more social notion of contract than we're used to. And that I uh, may have expounded to you at one point in your life.
0: Yes. Yes, definitely. Uh, Yeah. That, that, well, if I'm thinking, you know, just from a uh, customs uh, perspective of custom in the United States, at least business people, you know, they don't want to, they want to have long lasting relationships with other business people. It seems like a very intuitive concept that you're going to treat your business partner with a certain level of respect and have those, even if they're not uh, legally binding those uh, obligations and duties with respect to the other party. So, So it makes total sense to me that that would be incorporated into, into law.
1: I think it's how it's being incorporated that's the important idea, because Bonafides gave the jurists a an ability to, um, uh, to to begin to think about contracts as a social practice and to um, uh, and to um, uh, the example that's given and it, it's an important one, uh, although the the uh, circumstances are, may seem a little odd, but you imagine um, a someone who leaves a, a person. We'll call him A. Leaves a deposit of money with a another person B, and that person A is then subject to a a, a uh, criminal condemnation that involves the um, the confiscation of all of his property. And the example that the Romans give is under in that circumstance, does B have an obligation to return the deposit to A? Or is it the obligation to return the the, um, the deposit to um, to the government that has confiscated the goods? And uh, the, and there in that in the raising of that question, the uh, duty that is in that B owes to A can be influenced by whether B ha- uh, has a duty to the government to uh, carry out the government's. Confiscation and the Romans seem to, uh, at least one jurist thinks that the the duty, uh, uh, the duty lies to the larger social entity that is creating the contract and uh, and guaranteeing its enforcement. I think uh, the the example seems fairly mundane, but the um, but the principle that involved is really really important. Um, that um, we don't think of contractual duties as be- and rights being. Uh, entirely a matter of a and b we also think of them in the larger social context of what contracts are for and how they are viewed by society in general um, that's a, a major roman contribution they don't necessarily carry it out with complete efficiency and uh it's questionable whether it should be carried out with with uh with efficiency but they do um they do um uh, tend to insist on this social conception of of contract making that is bound to strike uh, bound to strike most uh, modern Americans uh, in particular as strange. Um,
0: that does that does sound strange on the surface level, but it makes. I mean, we very frequently res- resort to uh, public policy justifications for uh, certain. Parts of contract law, and that seems like it's a species of that, where you're you're saying we we have this contract law. Yes, it's you know you're talking about you're talking about um, a relationship between two people, but we're viewing the actual law with respect to the entirety of society. So that's very interesting to hear that example. So you you mentioned that the jurists helped develop the theory of bona fides, and that they were sort of a driving uh, driving influence in getting it into law. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit mechanically about how that happened. Um, where did they get the idea from? And then how did they influ- put it into law?
1: Certainly. Uh, the uh, the formula, the easiest way to look at this is to go back to the Praetor's Edict and look at the formulas that were used in order to enforce contracts. Um, the uh, formula... F- The formulas for sale there's one for the seller and one for the buyer but they are almost identical in their wording except for the changes that in the uh, difference in position uh enjoined the um formulas contain uh a reference to whatever it was that the defendant was obliged to do ex pide bona on the basis of good faith um and Undoubtedly, or at least it's thought this way by, by most legal historians, undoubtedly, originally this meant uh, sticking to one's word. Fides is, is a Roman concept that is used uh, uh, very widely in Roman sources and that, uh, that is thought of in terms of the, the duty to carry out one's word uh, uh, faithfully. Um, uh, to do what it is that one promises is a legal application of that notion. And that, uh, that notion uh, then becomes enforceable in the context of law. So uh, the seller is obliged to carry out his word and as a consequence is liable in a court for failure to do so. But the jurists took this phrase and began to interpret it, and here it's quite clear that they, or at least it's thought to be clear, that they were departing from the original intention uh, in the uh, in the wording of the formula, and were instead beginning to develop it in this broader social way that I suggested. Uh, um, this is a um, this is a process of interpretation that's not at all dissimilar to the sorts of interpretations that occur with regard to fundamental concepts in for instance the constitution uh, of the united states or, or or whatever but it has far-reaching consequences um the uh the general duty of both parties to adhere to a notion of good faith is uh, a juristic development um, and it allows the jurist to create duties pretty widely uh some of the most important duties include for instance the duty of a seller to uh, warrant the non-existence of latent defects in uh, the object of sale. Those kinds of duties are imposed by the jurors on, on the basis of this wording, ex fide bona, on the basis of good faith. And um, uh, so the, the, the wording thus has enormous consequences for the, um, for the ramification of contract law yeah uh, within the Roman world it it's continued to have a very prominent role in subsequent legal systems as well um, uh, uh, um, it's used in all kinds of ways to create duties and liabilities in for instance German or in French law um, uh, that um uh, the where the court is in a way kind of legislating for the parties, but um, is nominally just applying this notion that the parties are bound to one another by ties of good faith um this is this goes way beyond the notion of good faith in our legal system which is a much more restricted category uh, of uh of, of duty um and um and so european law has sort of, has accepted this much broader notion as uh being what it is looking for when it examines the conduct of the parties towards one another.
0: That's really fascinating. This might shock the listener to hear, but I have not studied the uh, the interpretive development of bona fides in any great depth. Uh, so I'll ask you, Professor Fryer, do you think that the that the interpretations or, or the development of um, of this concept? Do you think it, that the uh, interpretive mood moves uh, were fair. Do you think that they were contrived in some senses? Uh, were they natural? Uh, what's your sense of that?
1: In some ways, in some places you can certainly say that it looks to be a little contrived, but I think basically, um, and this goes along with something that professor uh, Duplessis said as well, um, that basically the, the jurors seem to look for a fair balance between two parties um, the, uh, there, there's been effort, an effort by scholars for instance to suggest that that in some areas of law uh, one party would have been predominant over another and that certainly is possible within the realities of a marketplace but the journalists seem by and large to have uh, ameliorated that uh, uh, division of wealth, of power uh, by looking for fair solutions um, it, it, it it's questionable. It's sometimes difficult to to, to know whether the jurists are doing the right thing or not, and uh, their question and their decisions can easily be questioned. But um, I think largely the jurists seem to have a very good sense. For instance, of the influence of money on the way that uh, on, on the on, on the way that the social world operates. So, yes, I, I uh, by and large, I think they they aim for fairness. They aim for what the jurist called iquitas, what what Roman society is large called iquitas, which means uh, which which means fairness in its uh, in its core meaning uh, between the parties to lawsuits.
0: Well, then that's good to hear. Uh, uh, so that's that's all very very interesting. Um, I think we should shift gears now to obligationes. Uh, which my understanding of it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of a a more general um, concept within or you know, within which Roman contract law fits. And I'm hoping you could talk about the, this this concept.
1: I think um, obligatio is a notion that one party is tied to another. That's the formal metaphor that is used uh, to describe uh, a relationship. Uh, in a way that is, for instance, not true of property, and at least in Roman law, of property relationships. Uh, there, the relationship is is of uh, an owner or of of a possessor with a piece of property, uh, directly with the piece of property. In, in in obligations the relationship is of, of one party to another um, and it is created this is a this is a sort of super concept that was that is mentioned and discussed by the jurists, probably not as important in the in the general law of Rome as it would be in later law. But obligations um, are typically divided into two broad groups: contract contractual obligations, which is what we've been discussing, and then what are called delictual obligations. Uh, obligations arising out of wrongdoing, of which uh, damage to property or damage to the person, uh, injury to another person's uh, um, personality or, or body, uh, can be regarded as uh, as another. Uh, they they are the separation between them is recognized from an early date, but because they're all grouped together under this broad concept of obligation, they have an influence on one another in a way that is not typical of our legal system. In our uh, legal system, torts and and uh, and contracts are held separate from one another. You take them in two different courses, uh, and uh, uh, they they don't they jar with one another in in some uh in, in some important ways um so that typically uh um, a lawsuit for instance over a dangerous uh uh what turns out to be a dangerous chemical that has been released into the public let's say a uh, a um a uh, a lotion that turns out to be uh, it turns out to affect some people very adversely can have both contractual and uh, and tort uh, implications, but the Romans uh, and Romans and systems that are derived from Roman law tend to see those two different types of planes merging together. Um, obligation, therefore, is a very powerful concept. Potentially, the Romans don't really develop it uh, uh, with full vigor but it does have a lot of influence on details of of the um of the systems that they devise I don't know if that's helped it, 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 when one's talking about obligations one really is at a fairly high level of uh, juristic abstraction and the jurists are quite good at that
0: right that is that is very helpful uh, I think pr- Professor Don Herzog in my 1l year said um that reach of contract is just a torque uh, and that, that can kind of give the same you you may, you may disagree with that as a, as a contracts professor but that kind of gives the same sense of these are two aspects of uh the same or two sides of the same coin I'll say where you have uh an obligation to another person and, and whether or not it's hurting yeah. them or what you owe them because of a contract it's the same exact thing it's just we we study it in-depth in two different classes essentially
1: yeah uh however the uh, what goes on in those two different classes is quite distinct. Um, Normally a contract obligation in our system is accompanied by uh, what is often called strict liability for the failure to carry out the contract. uh, So that coming in and saying, well, you know, um, there were circumstances beyond my my control that made it impossible for me to perform is not going to be heard as an argument um, in most cases. There are circumstances in which breach of contract if it's deliberate and intentionally harmful can be a uh can be a tort but uh, basically we tend to regard the two as in separate categories and when you get down into the point of detail for instance in theories of causation and so on the distinction is is uh, is real um I, um, I don't think of breach of contract as, as a tort, uh, and um, so I'm, I'm always reluctant to disagree with Don Herzog, who is uh, very skilled uh, b- both in uh, thinking and in arguing, but um, uh, uh, in this case, I'd venture to say that he's just plain wrong.
0: And I hope to God that I did not misrepresent his uh, his position. He might have been saying it provocatively, so I'll just, I'll just uh, put that. He is known for
1: being provocative. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, definitely, especially in class. Um, okay, that's that's all very helpful. Uh, I think we can we we discussed a little bit whether or not the jurists were really thinking in economic terms, and I think we said basically they weren't at all, or maybe they were slightly, but the, it wasn't the main point of their thinking. But I, I would like to just discuss. Uh, how the development of contract law helped to develop the Roman economy. Um, do you think that the, yeah, do you think that the development of, I'll just ask, do you think that the development of Roman contract law helped develop the Roman economy?
1: I think uh, probably it did on the whole, um, uh, despite all of the difficulties in for instance the implementation we started by talking about how did did people know what contract law was Um, knowledge of law is not very systematically diffused in roman society but gradually becomes more established as time passes Um, economic development in, in, uh, in as it relates to institutional development is a difficult question, but normally speaking, we think that as legal rights become clearer, as, as people can have more confidence in them, um, that economic development is likely to be uh, encouraged. That is to say, uh, instead of spending their money on, uh, on, on relatively ephemeral uh, ends, they uh, people will tend to invest and to think about uh, long-term uh, profit. The uh, the catastrophes that are currently uh, undertaking the Bitcoin industry um, show that people are not always wise about how they invest their money. Um, but uh, but at any rate, uh, the uh, institutions can pretty clearly tell them that if they invest it unwisely, they may not be protected, so that the risk is on them when they do that. Uh, the risk is reduced by the clarity of the legal rules, and uh, and by and large, that's regarded as beneficial to economic development. However, the details of all of this, as I said, are only recently being worked out. And um, uh, there still is a lot of uh, room for debate about exactly how development is related to um is related to institutions. I think and the jurist can probably be said on the whole to have been beneficial by working out this system of rules, even if it is not always optimal from the perspective of economic development. Um, on the other hand, it, it needs to be said just emphatically, the Roman world, uh, the Roman economy never really takes off, um, uh, and that may in part be due to um, the way that the Roman contract system was set up with all of these various contracts. There were contracts that fell through the gaps. There were difficulties that arose um, uh, in the creation of of firms and businesses uh, that um Seem to have inhibited growth, probably.
0: Yeah, and one one thing that you jumped out uh, that jumped out to me earlier that you said was you mentioned that contracts were by and large a face to face affair. So if you're if you're trying to build an, uh, an economy for the entire empire, that's an incredibly limiting thing to have. Uh, yeah. You're only doing business essentially within the city, or if you're traveling, you get to travel a long distance.
1: Recent studies by, uh, by particularly, there's a German scholar who has worked uh, extensively on this, tend to suggest that uh, when you look at Roman businesses, they were uh, very, they they could be reasonably sophisticated. They make good use of the uh, fact that uh, many many slaves, for instance, were quite skilled at business, um, uh, but they were shallow. They don't show a great usually they're limited to um uh, between one and five people um uh, they are they're small uh, uh by our standards um and the uh, development of a sort of tiered business system doesn't seem to uh, doesn't seem to occur uh except in rare instances and that really is important i uh, um uh, uh, the um uh, the lack of uh, of uh, vertical development um, means that uh, for that firms were uh, unstable, relatively um, uh, prone to uh, uh, insolvency um, in a way that um, the, that renders the business climate less than uh, rest less than robust
0: right and and one doesn't need to be a great scholar of Rome to see the contrast with uh, the Roman military an incredibly a, a more I shouldn't say incredibly a more uh developed, more hierarchical system than businesses one's gonna run way in front of the other uh, so that's a that's a very interesting contrast um indeed, yes One, well, you mentioned slaves, and I'd like to ask about that. Uh, did, did Roman contract law encourage the use of slaves in any way? Uh, was, was, was slavery important to Roman contract law in any way? Yes,
1: yeah, so I think uh, 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 slavery figures uh, pretty heavily in the Roman economy. Um, and there's a lot of debate still about whether slavery was in the end a net positive or a net negative as far as just the economy is concerned. I'm not talking about the moral aspects of it, but... Um, it um, it was a pretty brutal system for most slaves, but um, for a certain number of slaves, it was actually uh, a system that uh, that uh, allowed them uh, the ability to build build considerable economic power uh, in relationship to a uh, in relationship to an owner, and they could carry that power across to their lives after they left. I think the more difficult thing from a legal point of view was to figure out how to link the slave to uh, the slave manager, for instance, of a small business, how to link the manager to the owner such that creditors would not be put off by the fact that the slave actually has no property of uh, his or her own and uh, that is that's a major legal accomplishment was, uh it involves cooperation between the praetor in introducing new forms of action that allow for for creditors to go against the owner uh, of the slave um directly rather than having to go through the uh, slave uh and um uh, and the development of those mechanisms um uh uh, I'm. I don't want to give the impression that that, that uh, this body of law is perfect. Um, the Romans never worked their way, for instance, through a theory of agency, where the slave becomes simply the legal extension of the owner. Uh, but uh, they did. Um, they they did substantially recognize the um, uh, the uh, capacity on the part of owners to begin to develop businesses. Uh, using slaves as a, as a, as a sort of extension, uh, in a, in, a, in a weak sense.
0: That's very that's very interesting, uh, and obviously a, a huge topic. We're running up close to an hour here, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I would it would be a shame if I didn't ask you about damages, and and we can end with damages like any good contract law class. Uh, I was hoping we could first get a sort of an account of what. Damages were, or what sort of what sorts of damages there were in in the Roman legal system, um,
1: Yeah. I' uh, As uh, as I think Professor De Plessis, uh, uh, um mentioned, the damages are not, the the award at the end, the remedy that's given at the end of a contract action is normally expressed in monetary terms, um, so that um, this, what's called the the uh, monetary condemnation. Uh, of the defendant uh, and um, uh, that means that um, it is often rather difficult to um, I mean apart from the court saying that the defendant owes this much money to the uh, to the plaintiff um, there is not much in the way of remedy that goes beyond that and this surely reflects as uh, as as Professor de Plesser said Surely reflects upon the um up, upon the inadequacy of the court in, for instance, requiring that the defendant transfer property to the plaintiff. Uh, apart from the monetary condemnation, um, there is there is limited capacity for 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 something that substitutes. For instance, uh, some of the forms of action allow the um, allow the judge to give a monetary judgment in excess of the value of the object that's involved um as a practical effect and uh, uh, and thereby to sort of force the um uh, force the defendant to surrender property uh indirectly but um, the the system is quite weak as far as its ability to carry out uh what we call specific performance um the uh, one thing I would say is that uh, the the, the uh, nonetheless that the Romans are quite skilled in thinking about money and how to handle this problem, and uh, they develop um they develop for instance good rules with regard to restitution, um and uh, so for instance in many circumstances where for instance a buyer has paid in advance for something, and um. Uh, and the seller has not then delivered, the buyer may prefer restitution as a remedy. That is usually not possible, but there are circumstances in which it is possible, and the jurors think about that actively.
0: That's very interesting. And it's interesting to hear about uh, specific performance not generally being available. We did talk about that with Professor Duplessis a little bit, and I'm I'm looping this back to the development of the Roman economy. My understanding is that specific performance is uh, usually disfavored as an economic matter, that it's not uh, thought of as as beneficial economically as just getting the money. So that might actually uh, inadvertently work out in the favor of the Roman economy that they used uh, yeah. money for for their damages.
1: And as the Roman economy developed, um, uh, particularly after uh, in 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 the second century BCE. As the Roman economy developed, the sorts of lawsuits that came up were often susceptible to uh, to control via money. That is to say, uh, money gives law. as uh, has long been recognized a capacity to um, to to deal with parties in a way that, for instance, a, a an economy based on exchange doesn't uh, on on the exchange of goods doesn't a barter economy. Um, and the jurists certainly take advantage of that. They are fully aware of it. Um, uh, this is important because large sectors of the Roman economy were probably not monetized. In in, in fact, but um, uh, this would that would accord with what we know about underdeveloped countries generally. But um, uh, the law tends to cater to those sectors that were more commercially advanced, and uh, that's pretty plain in the uh in the in the text that we have surviving to us
0: okay that makes sense i i'll ask you one more substantive question and then i i promise i'll let you go i um i i have to unfortunately again abstract this and talk about obligatio i'm wondering if uh, the concept of obligatio informed how roman how romans thought about damages in any way
1: Uh, uh, yes a little um uh the um uh uh, again it it doesn't make any difference whether contract or delict uh, that is to say tort is involved Um, the condemnation is always in terms of money um i don't know i i it may have influenced it a little it's a good question i'm not sure of the absolutely sure of the answer to it um I, the uh, jurors don't go as far as we would have liked them to have gone in specifying how one looks at damages. They're aware of, of measuring um, the loss to the plaintiff in terms of markets, um, but they don't do a very good job of expressing the idea. They are particularly weak when it comes to the extent that a, uh, a damaged party, the, the, the victim of a breach can go after not only the direct losses associated with the economic exchange but also losses resulting from the breach of the contract Um, uh, uh, so that if i buy uh, beams from you uh, uh, roof beams from you and the beams turn out to be rotten and my building collapses uh, can i recover not only for the beams themselves but also for the collapsed building um, and they are uh, they they make some struggle in order to arrive at a just solution of that, but but uh, um, and their efforts are are informed by uh, by other areas of the law. but um, I'm not sure that obligation helps much one way or the other as a generalized concept.
0: Yeah, I think what I'm wondering, I think that there's a tendency, Say maybe uh law and e- law and economics people today, they'll think of um I might be I might just end up cutting this out because I'm completely mischaracterizing law and economics, uh, but they think of breach and uh damages and remedies more in terms of what is what is more efficient and what is more yes. optimal uh in, in general. Whereas <laughs> I'm wondering if Romans they thought of damages as you had this relationship with this person, you wronged that person, so therefore you have to make them right. Uh, was that sort sort of more the theoretical basis for damages? Would you say that's fair?
1: I'm not sure either of those concepts is going to be completely um, uh, completely good. To uh, uh, making making the plaintiff whole might often involve uh, a consideration of damages resulting from the da- monetary damages resulting from the breach in contract, um, and um, as I say, that was an area in which the jurists were weak. Um, uh, usually decisions on damages are, are, are left pretty much in the hands of the UDEX, as it seems, rather than being spelled out as a system by the jurors. So they're quite good about talking about duties, for instance, and rights of the parties as a consequence of a contract, but rather weak about talking about what happens when those rights and duties get into a court. Um, So that, we're, so that um, while the... Uh, while the damages are often defined in terms of uh, what's the Latin expression is in quote interest, the interest, the the financial interest of the plaintiff, um, the extent of those interests is often left quite murky in our sources, um, as if um, there was a an uncertainty that was going to have to be filled in by the judge at the time that a uh, decision was rendered. I, I, my own view is that the jurors deliberately abstain from this question. Um, as you will know from, from uh, first-year contracts, uh, our law was quite late in arriving at a concept of, uh, of consequential damages for, uh, for breach of contract, um, not really until after the Industrial Revolution was well underway um, and it might seem that that's just an obvious necessity, but uh, many legal systems, uh, uh, pre-modern legal systems, haven't thought of it as a necessity and a lot, simply allowed it on a case-by-case basis. That seems to be have been the Roman solution.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, I won't ask you any more questions other than do you have anything uh, coming up or anything that you're working on that you would like to plug for the audience?
1: Uh, not really. I, I mean, I've i begun working on a, um, I, I've been quite interested in law and economics problems more generally. I've begun working on the law of dowry, which is not very deeply studied from this uh, perspective. Dowry is an institution that allows for the, that allows, that requires the bride's side to uh, provide an agreed upon amount of property to the groom's side. In the making of a marriage um and then that property has to be returned to the bride side if the marriage ends through divorce or through the death of the husband um but if it's through the death of the wife it usually stays with the groom side um this uh during the marriage the all of the income from the property uh stays with the husband that is to say it is his property um and um, uh, he is not required to use that property in a way that benefits his wife during the course of the marriage. That's the basic description of the institution, and it has all kinds of of, uh, of economic uh, implications. It's, uh, it's it uh, it is just a, an unusual institution uh, that the Romans handled with considerable skill. The jurists handled with considerable skill in thinking about uh, how to protect both parties uh, uh to the arrangement from um uh, the potential either for the husband to be um less than fully di- diligent in protecting the uh bride's interests uh, or for the uh for the husband actually to be duplicitous in handling of the money um and those those were difficult questions um and uh, the jurors did the best they could within the structure of Roman institutions to provide a solution. i as I say, I'm. I'm just getting into this subject. I haven't done. I was working on contract law previously, but um, uh, we do know from Cicero that dowry was a ma- regarded as a major method for the uh, for the transfer of wealth between families, um, alongside sale and um, and inheritance.
0: That sounds very interesting and very useful. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out for, for your work. Uh, thank you for joining us, Professor Fryer, uh, and take care. It's been my pleasure.